Don't be afraid to try new things. Fail early and fail often so that you can learn and iterate and just keep going. I think be humble about it as well. Be ready to hear criticism and just take that with a grain of salt and continue to improve your own programs. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's episode, I speak with Brian Fricke, CISO at City National Bank. Brian and I talk about cultivating a tinkerer's mindset for creative problem solving, the link between listening and leadership, and why getting the job done and getting credit for it don't always go hand in hand. How does curiosity help your team work through challenges? And why do some leaders lose the ability to listen when they go through so much effort to hire talented people? Does the drive for recognition blind us to the solutions standing right in front of us? Brian, uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, For the uninitiated, please uh, introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Sure. My name is Brian Fricke. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at City National Bank in Los Angeles, California. I had about five years of active duty Marine Corps experience, followed by 10 years of federal government and DOD experience out in Washington, D.C., and then pivoted into the financial sector and uh, started my, my CISO path at that time. So I've been now a chief information security officer at several institutions uh, over the last uh, eight eight or so years, eight to ten years. So one question out of the gate, what was the biggest difference from working with the feds and uh, maybe working with the feds again, but being uh, in financial services? What, what, what's the, what was the biggest culture change for you there? You know, I got that question a lot early on. And really, there isn't that great of a difference in the sense that you still have a lot of regulatory driven requirements in the financial sector that mirror a lot of the same uh, regulatory expectations out from your inspectors general and the directives and the, the laws that are issued and, and uh, executed in the DOD and in the federal government through FISMA and other, other means. So it's been a very, it's actually a fairly easy transition because all those controls and, and all of that is, is really well-defined through NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, and other sources. So it was actually a pretty easy transition. Did you see it as a good transition coming out of the Marines? And then was it a stepping stone? Or would you recommend if somebody's leaving service to go, maybe just if they can, go straight into financial services? Which Was it a preparation, kind of a preparatory step? Or was there, was there a, a bigger view there that you had? What would you recommend? I think it depends on the career level you're at. So I did five years in the Marines. I was on avionics, working on helicopters, and that translated into more IT operations in federal government, which then translated into cybersecurity and then into more of a leadership role. And then I, I exited and got into the financial service sector. So depending on your career track and your you know where you're at, you may you may do 20 years in the in the military and be at a senior enough level to maybe transition into financial services or a CISO type role. So it really depends. Everybody's path is going to be different. Do you ever miss working on the helicopters? I do. You know, I sometimes think back that, that seemed to be a much simpler time. You know, a lot, a lot easier uh, uh, work. But there's always trade-offs, right? So you're not. I'm not eating MREs all the time. Uh, which airframe? The CH-53 Echo. Uh, it was the Super Stallion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, a relatively big helicopter uh, for the uninitiated. Yeah. 
That's right. Large, largest helicopter in the U.S. fleet. I think they now have a, a next generation of that same bird, but it was a, a lot of fun to work on and learn from. In fact, I think that one of the key skills I learned was troubleshooting, right? Breaking down uh, technology systems uh, on that helicopter and troubleshooting it, you know, cut it in half, then cut it in half again and continue to try to find root cause issues. And that really helped build the foundation for my future uh, when, it come, when it came to IT operations and, and that kind of thing. You state that, and to me, there's a, a lot of truth in it. Uh, I did not have that background, but growing up on a farm, you're kind of pre-internet, or at least we didn't have internet, and having lots of systems and you know internal combustion and hydraulic systems and yeah. different troubleshooting these things, and our gear wasn't necessarily the best. And so we had lots of blown lines and stuff catching on fire and a lot of dangerous things on the farm and you learn to troubleshoot and respond pretty quickly. It's certainly not to the angle or degree that you were in, but I credit that strangely with being a good troubleshooter in general and then overlaying that on IT and then ultimately security. So it's it's funny that you you mentioned that as a bridge. I appreciate that. And I think that's a good lesson for the listener. Maybe yeah. there's somebody out there who wants to work in security or maybe even move into leadership. And presently they're Maybe they're working in Motor T. Maybe they're working on something else, right? And they are saying, "How does this? How does A help B with my goal being to work in in IT or infosec?" I mean, maybe spend a little bit more on that. Uh, give some tips or some encouragement to that person, to that uh, guy or gal listening. Sure, I, I think you know it all starts with curiosity, right? Uh, being that tinkerer, right? And then as you begin to gain more technical expertise and more structured, formalized education or training around systems and how to troubleshoot systems. I think you begin to build that confidence and that broader uh, understanding of how to engage when you have some sort of, you know, incident or breakage where you can begin to look in different parts of whatever that system is. And having having that knowledge and experience will always help you in, when you become in a leadership role, even if you're in, in kind of that middle tier management role where you are uh, hands on still, right? You can still ask the right questions. And if somebody's telling you an answer you go, hmm, that didn't smell quite right. You know? <laughs> and so I think that's the that's the, the core there is making sure that you also know where, where your technology where your frontline guys are coming from, guys and gals. So there's a, a an oddball question I have, but I have to ask it. A very good friend of mine was in the army. I uh, was a paratrooper and did a bunch of interesting stuff. And I think he might even have been on a strangely on a marine helicopter and they were on some sort of joint mission kind of thing. And he made the comment about this. I don't remember the airframe, but he said he looks over and there's something just pouring out of uh, kind of the inside of where they're sitting. And it ends up being hydraulic fluid and they're yeah. flying and he freaks out and they get the attention of the person who would be responsible for this kind of issue while the aircraft's flying. And they're like, don't worry about it. They just, you know, cinched it off and no problem. I believe him to be telling the truth because he's never, he's never fibbed at all about this time in the service. He was very uh, adamant that this actually happened, and a lot of hydraulic fluid just spurted out of this particular bird. Is that a real thing? It could be. Um, you know, especially with the older uh, aircraft, um, I can imagine that there could have been some sort of auxiliary <laughs> system that wasn't necessary for maintaining flight. Uh, you know, it could be a winch, could be some other you know uh, non-critical system that may have sprung a leak. But it, you know, it, it's hard to say. You know, it's hard to say because every every situation is different. But I'm glad that the it was as it, it sounds like it wasn't that critical. There was stories of where you know those kinds of things would happen on purpose, like they would 
open up a valve or drop a bunch of bolts and nuts on the on the on the aircraft, you know, on the deck of the aircraft, and all of the Marines in there would freak out, eyeballs wide, <laughs> staring at all of this chaos. And of course, the you know the the, the guys, the air crew, were you know scrambling and just making making nonsense just to just to get a rise. So who knows? That could have been it. It could have been. It could have absolutely been that he was extremely concerned, and they said this was just. I mean, he said there the floor was slippery. It might even have been. He's been in a while ago. It might have been even a, a variation of even a Huey, right? Uh, yeah. A, a yeah. version of that. I had to ask, but uh, but moving forward, uh, one of the things I love to ask, and you had a really insightful sort of opinions and perspectives. Just advice to your younger self. You know, it's a it's a mentoring question, really, but it's it's focusing on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a, a list of, of perspectives on that. And, and where would you start if you're going to look back at yourself and maybe not in the Marines, but maybe even entering in IT? What advice would you give yourself? Well, I think the first thing I said was go buy Bitcoin, right? But that's that's too late. We all we, I kind of missed that vote. <laughs> right. I did think on that. And I thought, you know, if I could really coach, you know, my younger self a little bit more on that, I, I would say there's really three areas that I probably would would, would say go round yourself out, right? Learn as much as you can about the industry that you're trying to be in, about the business that you're in, and about the the technologies that you use, right? Go and seek out and have that curiosity. Be sure to, that you have really explored uh, what's out there. You will become a more proficient technology technologist or leader, manager, et cetera, in the domain if you have tried to discover more about it and how you can Fill those needs and understand their strategies and their uh, the, the management level and the lines of business that you support. Understanding what their concerns are, engage with them. That pivots to the second piece of advice, which is make those connections, broaden your network. You don't want to, in the heat of the moment, have to figure out who's responsible for things. So you definitely want to, uh, you know, make those connections early on in industry, within your organization, laterally, horizontally, wherever wherever you can. And again, that'll help you with your own career prospects, right? Uh, making those connections and not just technologists, right? Talk to finance people, talk to recruiters, talk to people that you know, you know, will will ultimately help you succeed in life long, long term. And the third one I, you know, I thought about is get financially literate. I think that young people don't often get exposure to financial literacy early on. You work hard, you play hard, but you've got to focus on your fundamentals uh, as a young earner so that as you become, as you begin to grow more and more, you do the right things and that'll take you a lot further in life, especially in later stages in life. So those are probably the three things I I tell my younger self. I completely agree. I think getting you know at some point getting a good accountant, uh, if you start doing well, right, mm-hmm. that can save you a lot of headache. Personal experience there, yeah. I you you also stated in some of the advice that you were mentioning, you noted that adults are just big children was a mm-hmm. statement you made, which is I don't know that I've heard that directly, especially not in this type of chat. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so you know I think one thing that again nobody tells kids and and you know you. Know, people in their 20s and 30s, like the people that are older than them generationally aren't necessarily always better, right? I mean, they may have more life experience, but they still may not have figured it all out. And so you just need to continue to, you know, make bold steps and, and I think engage the world fresh and, and don't don't live in anybody's shadow. I think that was kind of part of part of that. Just because maybe your boss is telling you how, to, how something should happen. If you see a whole other angle on how something should occur, don't be scared to bring that up. Obviously, you need to respect your elders and do, you know, in, in certain contexts, so you don't end up in any sort of, uh, you know, maybe political trouble with within your job function. But don't don't take everything that uh, older people say at face value, right? You definitely need to form your own opinions, use critical thinking, and continue to to make your own your make your own waves. Well, I think that the other thing is is I think as we become adults, we we lose just the 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 amazing 
elements of life we sort of forget about, right? I mean, curiosity. Yeah, when you were a kid and you had an hour to play, an hour was forever. Yeah. When when you sat down to appreciate certain things, you might have been just blown away by something small. And I think that there's a mental element to that as well. So there's yeah. a, you know, challenge things, but also maybe, you know, understand maybe, you know, how, to, how, to, how does a child or maybe somebody who's more youthful yeah. look at time and, and look at uh, all the amazing things around them, including their career, especially their career? Yeah, I think playing with ideas, new concepts. And I think, you know, those who do people who are good at like inventing or even coding probably do a little bit better at this where they have to imagine and create something new, whereas sometimes engineers and architects end up being very rigid about what tools they have and what they can do. And so I think you're right, you know, being able to we all think in certain boxes and we label things and we kind of box ourselves in. So if you can kind of continue to elbow that out and, and let your imagination flow with what's the sphere of really what's possible and then bring it back to the problem you're trying to solve. That's, uh, I think, a unique talent or skill set that we don't develop or focus on very often. If, in meetings, for instance, people are always talking. Nobody ever just pauses for a moment and thinks about the problem. We are ready to say the next thing. And it, you know, compounded when the more people in the room, because everybody wants to say something. So people, I think we should all be stepping back and go, look, if somebody takes a pause and thinks about something, that silence is okay. <laughs> so silence is one of the most powerful things, period. Mm-hmm. I'll explain what I mean here in just a second. But first, I, you made a comment to me when I asked, is there anything in general as leaders we should do more of? And the first thing you said is, is listen more, which yeah. involves that silence. How old were you when you came up with this, right? You're now in executive leadership. I mean, when did you learn to listen? You know, I had a supervisor slash boss who didn't listen. And I remember being like, look, I am I'm, 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 your subject matter expert in this space. And I'm trying to tell you and, and inform you of something, but you keep talking, right? And that really, you know, you can learn a lot from your bosses, good things and bad things, right? Things you want to replicate in your own life and in your own work and things that you want to avoid. And that was one thing that, that resonated with me was that, you know, that person doesn't listen to me or listen to anybody really as much as they ought to. So that became something where I try to be mindful of that, you know, listening to my staff, asking more of a democratic approach, like, okay, let's get a consensus here. Anybody else have an opinion? Hey, I haven't heard from you. So you, you. You tell me your opinion. Let your staff tell you what, you, what you're looking for. I mean, if, if you don't see the thing coming out of them, I think uniquely, if you can ask the right questions right? Then, then they will come to the right conclusions and they'll be the ones to tell you what the action plan should be. And now they have a sense of ownership of that instead of you going around and dictating to everybody and telling everybody how, it's, how it needs to be. There's a time and a place for that. But by and large, you should be a good listener if you're going to be a good information receiver from your own staff and your own, your own SMEs. Asking the right questions, I think that is overlooked and is a fantastic uh, way to think of things. I, the, some of the smartest people I know are just great at asking the right type of question. Yeah. I was saying quite the art. Uh, I think you were, you were honing in on it. You can know the answer, but what's the point? If, uh, if you've got some junior staff, why not ask some questions that spark the creativity and spark that thought, that, that curiosity within themselves to come up with the answer? Uh, again, it goes back to that. You know, they, they now own that. They, they will execute it to it more. It'll resonate with them and stick with them longer. I think there's a lot of great benefits, but I think it goes back to mindfulness, right? Having emotional intelligence as a leader to know when to tell the answer and when to, to kind of you know, suss that answer out of your own, your own people. Related to pausing or, or silence, which is roughly the same thing, that to me, whether you're talking about negotiation, whether you're talking about make, you know, calming yourself down, 
whether it's in speaking with people that are more powerful than you. Sometimes we're in too much of a hurry to share everything we know. And we want to, we're so nervous or maybe just excited that we want to just blast everything out and share all of what we know that we know. I had somebody ask me once, well, what's the first thing they should do when they're in a higher level meeting, SLT, ELT, whatever. I said, do you know what important people do? They pause. Watch them. Watch important people. They pause and they collect their thoughts just for a couple seconds. Could be 10, but it could be just a moment or two. And I think that's something I wish I would have learned a long time ago. Uh, I wish I would have would have practiced that and adopted it because it's not only is a calming thing to me, but it's also a respectful thing to do. So yeah, I, I appreciate the fact that you brought a lot of that up. You, you told me, make sure you don't just pause to get ready to speak again. Yeah, I think that's exactly, I think what strikes at the heart of a lot of just meeting after meeting where everyone's waiting to say their part as opposed to synthesizing the broader challenge and, 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 and listening to the other con- contributions to that, to that particular you know, problem solving exercise, whatever, whatever it may be. But yeah, definitely. I think we're just in such a go, go, go society, you know, social media and just the always on, you know, 24 seven kind of way that we interact with the world these days. And we have to be more mindful of these, of these changes in our behaviors and, and be, be specific with intention, right? You're making at, you're taking actions with intention and you're making statements with intention having your message and, and hitting on that message each time. I think those are definitely uh, key strengths of, as you said, I wouldn't say important people, but definitely the leaders who, who actually acquire these important roles. And so, yeah, I think you're, I think you're hundred percent right. You made another statement earlier. You said you can get a lot done if you don't want credit. <laughs> what does that mean? So I forget the actual quote. I thought it was um, General Powell, but he said, you can get anything done in Washington if you're willing to not take credit for it. And I think that really speaks to some of the bureaucracy and some of the politics involved with, you know, not, not just in Washington, but also in corporate environments. If you're trying to, you know, change maybe the, maybe it's a, the, the awareness and training program, right? You want to, you know, start tracking repeat clickers and maybe providing remedial training and doing additional, you know, things like that. If you have pushback from somebody in the line in a management level, you, you, you should identify the, like I know in my organization, you know, where I might see some friction. So it's, it's better for me to go to that person early on and try to grease the skids, so to speak, and, and ask them, you know, part, would they be willing to partner with me? And, and, you know, and a lot of times they end up, you know, I've seen it happen where it becomes their idea in a meeting. I'm fine with that. It doesn't hurt my ego uh, because guess what? We get the job done. Right. And, and that's a kind of a lightweight scenario there, but I think that can be applied in a lot of different places. Know who your allies are, know who where your friction points are and engage with them, right? And again, if they can become an ally and help you achieve your 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 goals, then then you've won, right? It doesn't matter if it if it was quote unquote their idea. You had another statement that I thought was fairly profound. You said, you know, energy towards something makes it happen. And I'm paraphrasing what you noted, but when you put energy toward a goal or a need, uh, it typically happens, you know, I think, you know, sort of the universe finds a way for it to occur. Specifically, we were talking about the value of having an external mentor and in, in reference to maybe even a board member. Tell us a little bit about what your thinking is around that and how you approach it and why is it a, a, even important? Yeah, I, I think when you look at what's the best way for somebody to grow in their different capacities, you know, formal training is great, but that's a much smaller percentage of, of what's really going to make it make you uh, be successful. I think long-term work experience is probably the, the largest chunk of that. But I think there's a, a moderate to, 
a large piece of the equation around your mentorships and your your partnerships that are that are beyond uh, what you're focused on uh, in in the short run and in the, in the, in the mid run. So the long term, when you start thinking about your long term strategies for what you're trying to achieve in your own career, you know you have to seek out people who've gone down that path, seek out people who've gone down parallel paths, maybe. And reach out and just say hi and just try to make that connection. I've had a couple of people connect to me on LinkedIn and they had a question. And, you know, I can't give hours and hours every week to, to mentor hundreds of people. No one can. But I can certainly, you know, try to point them in the right direction or engage with them, you know, in, in those different kind of levels. And then for me personally and, and for others, I think at the, <clears throat> at the CISO level, we look to CIOs and CEOs and board members who are not necessarily coming out of the technology space, but um, those board members who ask the right questions and, and in your own experience, you'll come across these these lights, these people who either light up the room or they they add a breath of fresh air to the conversation. Those are the ones you want to engage with. Um, I think there's another uh, colloquialism about you. You are the uh, summation of the, the four people you spend the most time with kind of some, the concept around that. And I think that extends to your work environment, not just your personal environment. And so if you can continue to engage with and find mentors that will lift you up, you know, people who you can lean on and cry to uh, and get advice from, you know, I think that's really healthy. What's the core there? Is it, you said earlier, it's people that ask the right questions, but I, when you unpacked that, it became more than that. So what is it? Is, is it both? Is, is one more important than the other at first? Where does that coaching start? You're not going to start by crying on their shoulder, like you just said. But I mean, maybe over time, as a coach, that's where it develops. What? Let's focus on questions. What? What are the questions that you had? You're reaching out to somebody who you may not know. That's your senior in some measure. That's a board member somewhere. What are you asking them? I think it starts out with saying, "Hey, I noticed in this the way that we connected. Maybe it's through LinkedIn. Maybe you saw them on a podcast. Maybe you saw them on a, a symposium or a board meeting or." something, right? You, you came across their path in some way. So highlight the, the, the reason that you're reaching out. Hey, you, you, you said ABC thing and it really resonated with me. And I have just another question on that, right? Or, hey, we're dealing with this particular problem that you were talking about. Here's my thought on it. What do you think? And just kind of start a conversation, right? And that's a, I think that's an easy way to enter. And you, you may be radio silence because they're super busy and don't, don't take offense to that. But they may reach out and go, oh, thanks. And they may answer your question. And that's how you can kind of spark that acquaintanceship, right? That may lead into a professional friendship or, or even a mentorship. But I think that's part of the, you know, you're recognizing this potential mentor because they resonated with you in some way. And so I think you need to highlight that for them and say, this is, you know, and then, and then you introduce yourself and, I, you know, hopefully it, it sparks and takes off. You don't have to be overly salesy or complainy, but just be genuine, right? And, and engage, engage the world. I think that you talked about the universe will bring you the things that you kind of set your mind to. And I think that's true. You, you have to put your mind to the tasks that you want to achieve or the goals you want to achieve and the types of people that you want to come across in your life. And it will happen. I think you'll gain that exposure. You'll have those opportunities, but you have to take the action. Is there a similar approach or a different approach when, when you're going after leadership within your current employers or board, meaning what you just described is sort of you're, you're out seeing the people, as you noted, that light up the room or virtually light up the room. And you're sort of picking them and saying, hey, will, will you talk to me is the net net of it. Mm -hmm. There are sometimes people, though, that we're sort of assigned. 
meaning we're at an employer and there's people up the chain, there's chain of command we got to work with and influence, and there's the board above them. Does that tactic change any? Is it the same or is it different when we're focusing on our own sort of chain of command and, and company? It definitely changes. Uh, you have to read the room, so to speak, and, and you'll have, a, I think, a different tact, right, in the way that you engage with people of different um, you know, status, so to speak, within your own organization or outside. I think if it's somebody who you need to be a little more cautious with, you, it's, you, know, you can still use, I think, a similar approach, but you, may, but you may, because they are a little closer to your orbit, right, if they're part of your, your own organization, just ask for a 15-minute one-on-one. And then if you get that time with them, use that 15 minutes to your advantage. Don't, don't fill the room up. Don't fill the conversation up trying to impress them with you. You should then think of what are some of the key questions I might ask hmm. that could pivot some discussion? What takeaway do I have? And really strategically think about that brief period of time you're going to have with that person. And at the end, be very thankful to them, of course, gratitude, right? And, and maybe ask for if it's okay to set up another one in a month. And, and you begin to set that cadence uh, with that person. And you start to build that mentorship, even though it may not be formally called a mentorship, right? But you've started the conversation. You've made the connection in your network. And that's, I think, the most powerful way to, to go about it. We had a guest on earlier that said there's sort of two people. There's the one that you meet with over coffee and then the version of them that's in the boardroom uh, or the ELT meeting or whatever is often a grumpier version of that because they have to be very serious. I found that interesting. So there's two, he said there's two people in that regard. I don't know if you had an opinion on that or a perspective or, or is that true or is, is that perspective not always the case? A little bit. I think people have, it depends. So some people may put on different persona when they go to work than they are when they're having a beer, you know, or having coffee. Most people do have that, but I think, you know, I try to be, I think there's a, a, an element of genuineness, right? And so I don't, I don't shift dramatically when I'm out and about from when I'm, you know, maybe at work in the way that I treat people. I treat everybody with dignity and respect and try to always put the best foot forward. But sometimes, in especially some of the harder meetings or the more formalized meetings, you do have to hold the line. And so, you know, that comes with the territory in any, in any situation, but it shouldn't so intimidate gonna, you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you a little bit on the spot. So let's say you've started as a new CISO someplace, and this is, I don't know, month number one or two for you. And I'm the chair of the audit committee, and we've never met. And you're going to electronically reach out to me. Hmm. What does that email say? I think first it says a, a simple introduction. Hi, I'm, I'm I'm Brian. I'm the new CISO, and I'm taking on this role. Da, da, da. And 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 just say I wanted to sync up with you and understand your priorities and and the pain points that you might have uh, that I can potentially help you with. I'd love to have some time with you if if you can carve out 15 minutes for a one-on-one, very briefly. You know, I think it's something along those lines that that acknowledges your role, their role, and how you're willing and wanting to understand what their priorities are, so that you can integrate it into your own strategy. And you can, and then you you're basically off. You're putting out that palm leaf to be an ally to them from the get go. And I think that most people they don't want to be flattered right away. They don't want a bunch of. They don't want to know how. They don't. They're not going to be impressed with your background. You don't need to embellish on all, all the things you've done, but focus on the mission, right? I think most people, especially in a work environment, right, there's a mission we have to get to, and if you can help be an ally in helping them achieve their mission, they're far more willing to open that door and continue a dialogue with you, which can then parlay into other conversations, mentorship opportunities, uh, or even just you having an ally, right, on the audit committee, so to speak, right, which can be really useful uh, in, a, in a future instance when you might need an extension on an audit, right? So I think it's just uh, sure. 
always step off with a good foot. So you send me that email and I ignore it. You don't get a response. And it's now been 25 days later, Hmm. 30 days later, whatever. What do you do? I think in the intervening time, you would have learned probably a little bit more about what's going on in that particular executive's you know, world or, or how your interaction you know, might, might exist. And so that follow-on email can simply say, hey, I know we didn't get a chance to connect, but I wanted to share with you some of the work we've been doing to help improve our audit posture or you know, something along those lines to where you're showing, even though they didn't engage with you, you still have their best interest in mind and you want to keep them up to date. And in good faith, you are, you know, keeping them informed. I think if you just continue that that path, I don't think they can ever come back. I don't think you'll ever sour a potential relationship by offering information or just being open to them. I think if you send criticism and start trying to, you know, hey, why, why this is the th- third time that I've tried to contact you. Don't start any conversation like that. Right. <laughs> you know, continue to understand that everyone's busy and, and you're just there to continue to offer that handout uh, for, for any support they may need. I think it's an element of be polite, be a little bit direct, but show grit to say, even if I'm being ignored, I know, you know, we have a mission and my role is is enforcing that and is helping that and is aligned with that. I would never want anyone to come in after me and say, well, you know what? Steve just didn't try hard enough. He didn't, he didn't reach out. He wasn't trying to make people aware, right? And then I think your point is very good. And the reason why I asked it that way, and I think you know this, is for those listening that have that question. I think one of the things we do very poorly in this industry is share advice, even on the silly questions I just asked, which I actually don't think they're silly, but it's silly that we don't have a place to go and talk about this stuff. And so uh, if you know, we talk about mission, to me, it's important that we cover some of that. What's it like to be rejected? What's it like to send the follow-on email to a board member or to an audit committee member? You know, how, does, how would you phrase it? you know, are we, how much detail do we go into? And so to me, I mean, I think that if there's one way we can help a little bit, it's just through what we just went through, uh, the, the, you know, the silly, you know, role play that we just had on these sending emails. Any other thoughts on that? No, I think you've hit it well. Um, again, it, it's, um, know what you're trying to achieve, right? You don't want to become game of thronesy and play 4d chess with people. So, you know, if you're just genuine and you're thoughtful about trying to, you know, align with their needs and to help be a good corporate citizen and try to, you know, obviously you can't please everyone all the time, but you can certainly make, you know, in good faith, the efforts to do so. And I think that that really shines through the way you communicate up, upwards, outwards, and downwards. Who's your favorite Game of Thrones character? Mm, I think I like the dragon uh, at the end when he uh, just melted the chair. I think that's the first time I really appreciated that he was like, you know what, this chair needs to go. And he, he destroyed the, uh, that was probably one of my favorite scenes of the whole of the whole uh, series. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the dragon. The dragon. Mine has to be the the hound. He was a good one. He reminds me a lot of uh, sultry marines who can get out. <laughs> they, they got that you know that dark side in them, but they're all just a big teddy bear. You know? My favorite scene is is uh, with the hound, and uh, when he's asking, I can't go into detail on the show, but he's asking uh, for a chicken. And the other soldier says, you'll have to pay for these chickens. And he said, you're a talker. Talkers make me hungry. Give me two of those chickens. And those that, that uh, so when I left uh, my prior uh, role, uh, somebody gave me a picture of the hound and, and a quote that I won't go into, but uh, that, that, um, that's one of my favorite uh, moments in the, in the show. You mentioned Game of Thrones, so I, I had to ask. Sure, sure. So speaking of 
Game of Thrones, maybe, you know, you, I, I want to go back a little bit into who are people that light up the room? You, you said this and, and you said, you know, the four people you spend the most time with is light up the room charisma. Is it, is it something else? Like what, what is that? Cause I think that's important. Who are the right people to kind of look for? Is there a characteristic? Is it brilliance? Is it title? Is it, is it charisma? Who lights up the room to you? I think it's a little bit of each of those, a little bit of finesse. Um, I think when you are in a room with a bunch of yes, yes, yes type people, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Sycophants or even unintentionally, you get that echo chamber kind of group think kind of going. It's the people who are willing to say, well, what about ABC thing? What about this other approach or this other angle to the problem? Because everybody's thinking about the problem the same way. And I think we all know there's like an Einstein quote about, you know, you, if you keep you have to think about it differently in order to solve the problem. If you use the same train of thought or the same way of thinking about a problem, you'll never resolve it. And I think that's really important. So for, for again, lighting up the room, it's, you know, lack of ego is a huge component, right? Somebody who can come to the table with a humble, humble expertise, right? And not be intimidated by the people in the room. And they offer fresh opinions about other ways to solve the problem. Anybody can describe the problem Anyone can provide different ways to describe the problem, but we need to be solution focused and not think about it uh, in, in the same ways we've been thinking about it. I think those are the kinds of characteristics or yeah. uh, situations where you see that. I think the quote, and you would know better than I would, but I think the quote you're going for is it's something to the effect of we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking used when we created them. I think is the I think that's where you were going. Uh, he had so many good quotes; it could have, it may not be, but but I think that that was it, and and I completely agree. I think there's a, a comfort and a confidence, which is a theme I share a lot on the show. We talk about that that comes from people that sort of light up the room. Somebody that can object to something and still do it in a graceful way that doesn't you know flip over the table in the process, but sort of is a welcoming kind of challenge. We got onto another topic that I think it's now the second time it's been brought up. And I think it's worth going into, you were telling me one of the changes you made and it's helped you as a leader is meditation. Just introduce me to how did you, how did you get on that to begin with? And, and, you know, how do you go from Marine to meditator? Through a long journey, uh, for sure. I think that especially with COVID, a lot of people are confronted more and more uh, with their own mental health and stress and how they're dealing with that and how they separate and have a work-life balance, right? Those are two really critical things. You know, the title and the salary and, and, and all that stuff is important, but in the role you're in, the work-life balance and the mental health components are just as, just as critical. You know, for me, dealing with high-stress situations pretty consistently year over year, you know, something had to change, right? And often, you know, in any industry, you know, uh, there's so many industries where they're, they're, they're high stress, especially in ours. And, you know, self-medicating isn't always isn't going to be a recipe for long term success. And so you have to start really understanding who you are, right? Who am I and what am I trying to achieve and not let the external stressors get inside and create all this anxiety about the future or all this, you know, um, depression about the past and the things you can't control, right? The future and the past don't exist technically, right? It's all in your head. It's just memories and, and forward thinking. So if you try to meditate and stay in the now, you're able to, I think, you know, reframe your view of particular issues. And so many times at night when I'm, and that's when I typically do most of my meditation is in the morning and at night, 
new new ideas will come to me or oh this is a way I could solve that problem right I have this there's this once you calm your mind I think you just are more free to exercise that process more more intentionally right so with intention you begin to direct your thoughts as opposed to just that chatterbox that goes on in your head all the time that, you, that won't shut up when you try to lay down to go to sleep or so through meditation that's helped me become more disciplined and I, I've seen the benefits of you know not only in my in my personal life but also even in my work life, being able to come up with new new approaches to problems, new concepts, new new thoughts, and then I can bounce those off of my my colleagues and and continue to build on that. So, what do you say to the person that says, "Yeah, meditation. I'm a CISO, and meditation that sounds soft. Like I don't, I'm not. That's 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 not. You know, I don't even know why they're talking about meditation on this podcast, and I don't know why. Like, how? What do you say to to somebody who's not who who maybe out of the gate isn't that warm to it? Like what what's the what's the reality there? You know, to that I would you said soft. I, I thought immediately of soft skills, right? And I feel like this is one of those underdeveloped soft skills in our industry and others, and really around the world probably, where people just need to be just have some emotional intelligence, have some mindfulness about your place in the world and what you're trying to achieve and how you interact with other people. And you know, and I think that parlays into you setting aside some time to just quietly, you know, be, right? I, I think we're doing so off, we're, we're doing so much so often. Uh, if we can just be, right, and have a moment, you end up finding that, that it helps you, re, you know, just find your center. And people who are skeptical, I would challenge them first, have you tried it? Have you tried it consistently? Just like going to the gym. If you go to the gym and you try to work out one time and it's too hard and you quit, Okay, well, the, the gym isn't for you, I guess. And so you'll go through your life without any sort of, not maybe not the gym, but any sort of physical like exercise or activity. And I say, just try it. You know, uh, there's yeah. so many ways to do it. So just find something that works for you. So a couple of things. One, like if somebody wants, if, if they're for mental health reasons and for, for whatever reason, they're interested in meditation. For you, what was your sort of step zero? How do you do it? I mean, make time for it. Is there an app? Is there a book you read? Is there a blog? Is there... Is there a resource that you, in general you would point someone toward? Man, there's so many apps these days. I feel like I don't have one in particular to point people to. Um, I think the first one that probably helped me, and this may sound a little funny, was on my Apple Watch was this Breathe app. And you probably yeah. have an Apple Watch and most people are going, oh yeah, I've seen that thing. That's annoying, right? <laughs> breathe, time, take time to breathe. But just do it, right? Just take just 10 seconds, take take 60 seconds, do you know something simple, five minutes. You know What I end up doing is when I feel that the stress is bubbling, and I know I've got about five minutes I can spare between a meeting. I'll actually pull up YouTube on my phone and I will find a quick five minute meditation or a 10 minute meditation, just something or even just music that's really low key that kind of just helps me with no words, just gets right. me in that in that bubble. Um, so there's different resources like that. But I think that Apple Watch, again, the haptic feedback reminding you, hey, to take a moment, right? You're probably you know freaking out <laughs> whatever, whatever time of day you're probably going 100 miles an hour. So you know, remember to let off the gas a little. Quickly, help, Brian, help me finish the sentence. So meditation has made me a better leader. How? Because I can manage my stress different ways that I had not been able to before. And that translates into my patience, increased patience with others, recognizing when I'm being, quote unquote, triggered or, or, or led down a path of frustration or anger, or I might want to raise my voice. And, you know, those things kind of happen. There's no good reason. I think in our industry to ever raise your voice at somebody, unless maybe you're in like a data center and it's really loud, right? 
<laughs> but yeah, I think the, the through, through patience and just trying to understand the other person's point of view, right? I think those two things are really what would have the skills that I've grown in the last several years around my own my own practice. You shared with me, I think, something that was fairly profound, and it's it's staring us all in the face. Um, we often have teams that are or leadership tenures that are short lived. You said to me. In a regulated industry, we need time for the people to mature. What does that mean? Yeah, I think as you, you know, showing up in a new environment or, or maybe a, an unregulated environment, you might find that while they're following SOPs and trying to follow all their processes, they don't have a good understanding of the actual technical controls outlined through our various frameworks, right? Could be the MITRE ATT&CK framework, could be NIST, could be the FFIC framework. There's so many, ISACA, ISO, whatever it is. And being able to implement those controls and work them into your day-to-day processes and so that the subject matter experts understand, like you may be the SME in a particular domain, but how well have we incorporated the key controls, right? Again, CSC or NIST or any other framework, how well have we incorporated those and can measure their effectiveness and report that out to management? That's a that takes some time to build that expertise with your own staff, much less to much less to build it in your actual procedures and your dashboards and reporting mechanisms. So I think that's a frustration that a lot of organizations are going to have when they do have regulators, auditors, et cetera, saying, OK, you know, where's this? Where's that? Where's this? And it's like, let, let us we need time to get structured and matured in these spaces so that we can provide that if we if we if we it's kind of like, you know, seeing the, you know, not seeing the forest for the tree itself, right? And then getting so myopically focused on one area, you've got to incorporate those things and build a holistic management control program around a particular discipline, vulnerability management, asset management, risk management, whatever it may be within your organization, create that management control program. That way, everything is defined really well for your staff. And then they can execute to that. Right. right? We had turnover binders in the military. We had these turnover binders and, and SOPs and CONOPs and all kinds of documentation. But even but it still took time to develop those things, right? Years and years and years to perfect them. So you know, cyber is a young industry. We need more time, I think, as a, a holistically as an industry and especially as a workforce to to be a hundred percent ready to to execute flawlessly because <laughs> that's where we have to be, right? The bad guys just need one in, right? We got to be perfect right. all the time, and that that well, takes time. I, I think a lot of past audits or regulations are just slopped together. You know, they're made to look good in a spreadsheet. The, the implementation and the true capability is often not there, uh, truthfully. And so we're forced on, we're so focused on that outcome of passing that we're really not working on becoming more capable. The efficacy is never there. I see that. I've seen it in financial services. I've seen it in healthcare, banking, lending, whatever. Uh, and it's, it's tough to see. One thing I would say to that is a lot of times you have regulators and auditors who might not have had an opportunity to be an operational focused individual, right? Somebody who got a chance to be in the front line, in the trenches, building building servers and you know implementing technologies and then shifting really quickly to deal with an outage and then pivoting over to deal with a troubleshooting concern. Oh yeah, 10% of my job is probably documentation. I need to make sure I do that, right? Somebody who really understands the operational nature and the difficulties when you're, you know, typically understaffed and, and in the trenches. You know, these these are typically staff, again, they're very capable, very knowledgeable auditors and regulators and, and second line risk assessors, 
but you know, have they had an opportunity to really understand what it's like to be on the operational side in the, in the first line? Maybe not. And that's where, again, first line has to get better at learning how to speak with auditors and regulators and those, those we're almost in two different worlds, right? Mar- Mars and Venus, so to speak, right? And we have to reach out and do our best to, to bridge that gap because you have, to, you have to understand that they may not understand the operational implications for what they're asking you to do, right? And so it, it, it's always going, you know, they're teaching us and we're teaching them, right? And so you have to keep that mindset as you engage. Dude, I've got so much more stuff to cover and we're almost out of time. I got two more subjects I want to cover with you. One of them is, which I think it's super important to cover, is just celebration. So how do you celebrate with your team? I think many organizations struggle with this. They, it's hard to get credit for things that don't happen. Uh, we had several kind of points we, we spoke about before. You know, your statement was whack-a-mole doesn't allow time for celebration. But, but talk to me about ideas you have on just in general uh, on, on celebration and your role as a CISO. Yeah, I think the so the better the better structured you are to where you know who is accountable and responsible for key functions in your organization, the better, right? If you have all generalists and everybody's responsible for everything, that means nobody's responsible for anything, right? We've probably heard that one before. So once you get structured and you know who owns which components of your programs, celebrate those small wins, right? You've got to you know highlight those those incremental improvements because if you wait until the final project is done or if you wait until the you know, the regulatory matter has been cleared or you wait until the audit has been closed. I think you can end up, you know, people just get into the drudgery and, and get mired in the day and in, in all of that. And I think when you when you recognize their contributions, you're kind of pulling them out of the quicksand, you know, so to speak. You know, every every, um, every Friday I have a coffee with a CISO. It's a 30 minutes, all hands, uh, especially in this uh, very virtual, these virtual times. And it allows me to give a quick 10 to 15 minute update to all of my staff on what was happening for the week, what our big priorities are. And just, you know, generally, I also get a, t- a chance to highlight some of the key successes I saw during the week with my staff. And then I pause and I allow the staff to give kudos laterally, right? Okay, let, let's hear some kudos. Like, like t- tell me, like, who, who's, who's really made your day this week or who, you know, who removed a blocker or who was able to successfully clear, you know, take care of something for you. And, you know, we have internal recognition programs that are formalized and you go and you fill out a web form and you hit the submit button and somebody gets an email and that's great. Um, it really is. But I think when you are able to have everybody in the room and people are able to give shout outs to people and kudos live, that's a really, I think it boosts their, you know, personal pride in the work they're doing. They, they feel recognized not only by the boss, right? So who cares, right? But they get recognized by their peers. I think that's really powerful. Uh, similar with our co- colleague of the quarter type exercises. It's not a um, popularity contest, right? But it, it truly allows them to to weigh in on and vote and kind of contribute to the selection of your colleagues of the quarter. And those are the kinds of, I think, engagements that allow you know, you know the recognition uh, of, of all the great work that's happening. So don't wait until some major milestone. Celebrate the, the small wins, too. That's perfect. Completely agree. You know, find find early wins and celebrate those. One final question, actually, and we, we ask it uh, to every guest. Uh, pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO, Brian, what does being a new CISO mean to you? It is a tough job, and there are so many right ways to do this job. There's a lot of wrong ways too. Don't, don't get me wrong, but that that is really the nature of it: is have the the bravery, have the courage to to try new things, to engage with new people, and and try to bring new ideas to the table on how to solve these very unique and dynamic challenges that we have. You know, don't lose sight of the fundamentals, 
right? Obviously, and maybe not so obvious, but those fundamentals like patch management, vulnerability management, asset management, there's some really critical core areas that you've got to get right. But there's a lot of dynamic ways to, to make that happen. So don't be afraid to try new things, you know, fail early and fail often so that you can learn and iterate and just keep going. I think that that's and, and be humble. I think be humble about it as well. Be, be ready to hear criticism and just take that with a grain of salt and continue to improve your own programs. Brian, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.